1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and
1: Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Right now, we want to get to the ground in Tel Aviv. Uh, we're joined uh, by uh, Galit Altstein. Uh, she is the economic and government reporter with Bloomberg News based in Tel Aviv. Um, Galit, thanks so much for joining us. I know this is an incredibly difficult time for everyone uh, in that part of the world. What can you tell us about the latest reporting on the ground?
3: So um, basically, um, we're looking um, at at a couple of things here Um, on the southern front of Israel, which is uh, in the Gaza vicinity. um, Until this morning, at least, um, there were still infiltrations of um, Hamas uh, militant attackers who went who managed to come through the fence. This was on a much lower scale than it obviously was on on Saturday when they came by, as it turns out, by the hundreds. um, By the way, the IDF is talking about um, 1,000 Hamas um, attackers who came Who broke the fence and just went into israel on saturday morning so uh, what i started saying is that until this morning we were still seeing um infiltrations on a much smaller scale and there were still combat um, arenas in the south of israel with um defense forces trying to get hold of um israelis israeli communities and settlements in the south of israel and trying to sort of you know um clean them of of potential, um, you know, attackers there, and um, at the same time trying to evacuate a lot of the, not a lot of actually, most of the settlements, Israeli settlements and communities were just by the Gaza fence. There are about um, 24 of them, I think, and I think that so far 15 have been evacuated and they're still working on the rest. So um, that is what is going on on the south of Israel. Um, Later on today, um, and and that is basically... And under control at, the, at this time um, in the north of israel it has been um relatively quiet until this afternoon um it is still not um a not, not not a very uh, bad situation there um, but we have seen um a bit of mortar fire um fired from lebanon and there were also there was also a very uh, minor infiltration um and in the idea i'm just um i'm looking at my phone to to be exact on what they said they they did put out a message um, about a couple of hours ago, that they had killed a number of armed suspects that infiltrated into Israel from Lebanese territory. Um, Hezbollah has denied um, connection with this, um, which is important because you know everyone is also now looking at Hezbollah to see if they, if they will um, join um, the attacks on Israel to form like a sort of multi-front right. uh, arena. Uh,
2: can I ask, Matt Miller here uh, in New York, and really appreciate you joining us? And I understand. Um, how difficult it must be to report on this right now. But what do we know about Israel's plans to go into Gaza? And how are, you know, uh, you know, civilians in Gaza going to get out? Because of course, they've got borders uh, on all sides uh, and the ocean uh, and the the med. Um, so it seems like they're stuck. How can they get out if Israel's going to sweep in militarily?
3: Yeah, so so this is a very good question because, you know, Matt, we've been hearing um, uh, IDF officials who have been briefing um, journalists um, about um, twice or or, or more than that every day. And just this morning, one of the IDF spokespeople told us, some journalists, that um, they will be evacuating Gaza when asked if... um, Israel will actually be evacuating Gaza because Israel um, does not, you know, does not control Gaza at this time. So he said no, but we will uh, recommend they, they evacuate, you know, on their own. And this is a very good question that has not been answered answered yet. And this is definitely something um to keep um, pushing the IDF to give answers on, um, because the answer to that is not clear. Although the IDF is saying we will want people to evacuate, we do not know how. Um, We we do know that at this time, um, the Gaza Strip has been cut off from electricity uh, supply, water supply, fuel supply, and other supplies as well, because um, all passages um, have been shut down. One of the main passages, by the way, the Erez passage, was, was, was one of the breach points through which the attackers came through on Saturday, and IDF officials have been telling us, on record, we're not in a hurry, you know, to to rebuild this passage because this is what it was used for.
1: Right. So, what do we know about the hostages and maybe any plans to get them back?
3: Yeah. So. So. Um you know, obviously, you know, all sides are keeping their cards very, very, very yep. close to, to their chests at this point. Um, there have been um, various reports today um, about about some sort of negotiations going on, mainly um, negotiations to free um, women and children who were taken hostage into Gaza in turn for, for a Women prisoners of Hamas that are being held in Israel, um, an official Israeli source, a uh, high-ranking official Israeli source, who asked not to be named, but he had deni- he has denied that um, explicitly, and um, I think that Hamas, although um, to be frank, I'm not sure who in Hamas have also just over the past hour denied that there's any negotiations going on. So it's nothing very firm, you know, that, it, yep. that is going on at this stage.
1: All right, uh, Galit, thank you so much for joining us. We know uh, it's a very, very difficult time, and we appreciate getting uh, some of your time and your reporting. Galit Altstein, Israel economy and government reporter with Bloomberg News, based in Tel Aviv. So we will continue to bring you the latest uh, reporting on this situation.
4: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
5: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
6: Kent, our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to continue to follow
1: uh, the story uh, in Israel, the war there with Hamas uh, militants, uh, Roz Matheson joins us. She's the uh, news director for EMEA, uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, for Bloomberg News, based in um I think London. Uh, Roz, thanks so much for joining us. I know it's a busy, busy time here. I guess one of the questions over here that a lot of folks are asking, I'm sure it's the same there, is just how did this happen? What happened to the vaunted intelligence of not only Israel, but everybody else in that part of the world, including the U.S. and the West?
7: Well, that is the ultimate question, and it may take weeks or even months until we understand some of that, because, as you can say, this seems to have been an absolute surprise very early on Saturday morning that this kind of infiltration could happen into Israel itself. And Israeli intelligence is famed for its ability. Uh, They're known for it. They share their intel with their key allies, including the US. And so what went wrong here? Because this operation by Hamas must have been months in the planning. It was very intricate. It was very detailed. It was very carefully carried out. How is it that no one in the Israeli intelligence community got wind of this? Uh, and so obviously, an ex- you know, lots of questions now that are going on for the defense force in all of that. And they're saying it's going to take them weeks, if not months, to try and understand where the failures were in this, but obviously very much caught by surprise. And you can see, you know, that the perhaps the recriminations that may come from that down the track including for the prime minister benjamin netanyahu right now the country very much rallying behind him in this moment Um, but there are also questions already coming about the failure here of the government to have known about this
2: so raz as far as we know now you had this um multi-point breach of the israeli border right the attacks and also hostage taking did the um did the, I guess, attackers then pull back into Gaza and, and other uh, sort of cross-border areas? And is, does it look like they're trying to draw Israeli forces into those areas?
7: Well, in fact, if anything, they seem to have been trying to push further into some Jewish communities that are in that area that's very close to the Gaza Strip and in the south of Israel and trying to push on into communities and towns. Uh, And some of that is about attacking Israeli military posts in the area. Some of it has been unfortunately, about attacking civilians in the area. And in some cases, as you say, taking those civilians back into the Gaza Strip for whatever reason is that to use them as hostages uh, for whatever purposes, but certainly drawing some of them back into the Gaza area. So it's about sort of just sending the message to Israel, you know what, you're not safe inside your own border, we can come for you and we will. But it's also about sort of using hostages uh, for for sort of further purposes as this conflict goes on. I mean, there are real questions about whether this now leads to a full scale ground invasion by Israel um, of Palestine territories, including the Gaza Strip. So the purposes of those hostages, well, one can only guess at that.
2: Do we know anything about uh, personnel numbers? How many um, the attackers had? And do we know anything about Um, you know, equipment. I imagine they weren't uh, coming in tanks, just um, shoulder-launched rockets and, uh, you know, and machine guns, or what do we know about that sort of thing?
7: Well, interesting. It was a fairly sophisticated operation. I mean, Hamas has been fighting in some measure for for decades uh, against Israel, um, and they're supported They've been supported over the years financially and in other ways by Iran. Of course, there are questions about how much Iran may or may not have been involved in this particular episode that we're seeing now. But these are sort of been carrying out guerrilla warfare of, of some of some extent, you know, for, for years. So they're very highly trained. Uh, there are apparently systems of tunnels they may have used. Uh, they use mechanised parachutes to literally parachute themselves into, into Israeli territory and quite an organized, coordinated operation. So this is not just sort of random groups roaming around. It, it, is, it is quite organized and sophisticated.
1: So, Raz, we've seen uh, video coverage of, you know, it seems like tanks massing, uh, armed personnel carriers massing on the Israeli side. Uh, the reports this morning of a call up of 300,000 reservists. Is it the expectation that... Israel at some point in the near future will make a full-scale invasion of that part of the of, of Gaza.
7: It's certainly seen as probable. I mean, this is a severe attack on Israel. The high number of civilian casualties that have, that we've seen, uh, it, it will compel the government to, to act. In the past, they've retaliated in different ways. Maybe they've struck. Um, through sort of rocket fire back into the Gaza Strip. We're seeing that already. If they blame Iran, they tend to hit Iran's proxies elsewhere in the area. This goes beyond what we've seen in a very long time in terms of the attack, the level of the attack on Israel, which will probably lead to a a much bigger scale uh, retaliation. And that's why the idea of a full scale ground war now really is on the table. I mean, the Israeli government's talking about months of campaign here, military campaign. This is not going to be over in the next couple of days. They're really going to turn the screws on Gaza. They're turning the water off. They're turning the power off. They're going to make life for people living in Gaza extremely miserable. Um, So we really are looking at the prospect of a full-scale ground war now in the Middle
2: East. I mean, given the size of the attack. and the support that Iran has historically provided to Hamas and Hezbollah, it seems difficult to imagine the Iranians didn't know, um, e- even if you maybe uh, say they weren't involved in the actual planning, which the Wall Street Journal has reported that they were, um, quoting unidentified members of Hamas and Hezbollah. What does this mean for Israel? I mean, in terms of markets, Raz, and I hate to bring it back to that, but, um, you know, we've looked at oil coming up roughly 4 to 5%. Um, if we get solid evidence that Iran is behind this, does that push the price higher? Um, are, there, are those flows completely cut off?
7: Well, that becomes a real question right now. What you're seeing, obviously, is a reaction in financial markets around the world, be it riskier assets and also oil. Uh, and that's sort of an a knee jerk response to the to the extent of the of the conflict so far. But if you get contagion, which means you're pulling in other players in the Middle East, particularly Iran, and if all supply is affected, because, right now where, where we are, there's no disruption to all supply. And so the, the price move is simply a reaction, a question of, sort of risk being priced into the market. But if you get to the point that supply is really disrupted through the, the straits there, I mean, Iran has been pumping oil again with the US sort of turning a slight uh, blind eye to that, then you're going to get real issues about around supply. And that feeds not just into the oil market, but also into broader questions around global inflation, uh, the problems for, int- for, for interest rates around the world, higher for longer for interest rates. So there are real possible contagion effects for markets here in the longer term. And that's what people are really watching is does this stay contained where it is or does it draw in Iran and suddenly you've got a much broader regional conflict that's that's really affecting things like oil supply.
1: Roz, to the effect that Israel does in fact mount some type of invasion, um, is there any sense as the timing? Is this in a matter of days or is it weeks? I just don't know how long... It takes for them to get mobilized. It seems like Israel would probably be on a high level of alert at all times anyway, but do we have any sense of timing?
7: Uh, It's very unclear and much might depend on how things go in terms of any push by Israel into the Gaza Strip or whether Israel takes the initiative and starts striking targets inside Iran. I mean, they also may opt if they do want to do something against Iran to, to hit one of Iran's proxies in the region, which they've done before. There'll be a high level of caution about taking that step with Iran, as I said, because that just like escalates significantly the tension in the whole region. And the US and other players, you know, allies of of Israel are are being very, very cautious about that and urging Israel to to be careful and walk the steps on this. No one really seems to be agitating for an immediate strike um, on Iran. And certainly Iran doesn't seem to be showing an inclination to, to directly attack. Israel, and so that's possibly some way off. We first probably need to see how things play out in the Gaza Strip, but certainly it does remain a key question in the minds of many people: is where does this begin, and where is it? Where on earth is it going to end?
2: Just uh, to wrap our heads around this geographically, Raz, um, it, does it look like most of the attackers came out of Gaza, and missiles coming out of uh, Lebanon, the West Bank, and Jerusalem seem problem-free at the at the moment?
7: Well, certainly the attackers have mostly come out of Gaza, but we are seeing some skirmishes involving Hezbollah, which is obviously from the Lebanon side of things. And we've seen some rockets fired by Hezbollah into Israel. We've seen Israel fire some rockets back. We're now seeing reports that a handful of people may have attempted, Palestinians may have attempted to cross from the Lebanon side um, into Israel. And we're seeing retaliation going on there. So it, it is happening on both ends, but it's mostly concentrated in the South.
1: All right, Roz. Thanks so much for joining us. Roz Matheson, uh, News Director for Bloomberg News over in London.
6: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Right now, we're going to get back to the story at hand, the uh, conflict in Israel, and we're going to do that today with Dr. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center, uh, also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, someone who's uh, steeped uh, in all things geopolitical uh, issues on that uh, type, that that part of the world. Dr. Cohen, thanks for joining us here. We'd love to just – we've had boy a full, I guess, 24 hours to kind of figure out what's going – or 48 hours to figure out what's going on there. What's your – I guess initial take, maybe informed take, as what we've witnessed since Saturday morning?
8: First of all, we witnessed uh, an attack on Israeli civilians that we did not see that level of death uh, since the Holocaust. Uh, Probably in the end of the day, it's going to be 800 to 900 people killed in one day. Uh, Rape, um, taking people hostage and uh, uh, prisoner, including little children, uh, murdering um, parents in front of the children, uh, uh, put, posting rape on social media, uh, desecration of corpses, etc. These are horrifying pictures. Uh, on the um, Israeli front, uh, this is the largest Israeli failure since the Yom Kippur War, the October War of 1973. Um, uh, the Israeli intelligence, the Shin Bet, uh, the security service, the Mossad, uh, the external intelligence, and the military intelligence failed to understand what was right in front of them. I was reading newspapers with reports of the meetings of all these organizations with the Iranians, uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Beirut, and asking a question that the Israeli leaders should have asked, what's going on here? Uh, Why the meeting? And they were meeting weekly or bi-weekly in Beirut. They also are connecting through Turkey, uh, which gave uh, shelter to senior Hamas operatives. And then uh, the question that I'm focused on now is whether Hezbollah, the fully-owned subsidiary of Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, the uh, leader of Hezbollah, Uh, Sheikh Nasrallah, has a title of representative of the supreme leader of Iran in Lebanon. Are they entering the fray? If they do, this is a very, very serious uh, threat to Israeli existence because Hezbollah reportedly has between 100 and 200,000 rockets, whereas Hamas was shooting into Israel at a rate of 2,000 rockets uh, in 20 minutes, a thousand rockets, um, uh, what is it, 100, 200 rockets uh, a minute, uh, that the Israeli uh, Iron Dome system, uh, one of the most advanced in the world, was overwhelmed. Uh, now we may have higher rates of bigger rockets hitting strategic places like the uh, refinery in Haifa uh, and turning Israeli cities um, where my relatives live all over the country where I used to live myself, uh, turning that into a fiery inferno. In that case, uh, Israeli leaders, including the head of the Mossad, uh, David Barnea, about two weeks ago, said that they will have um, the top leadership of Iran responsible in Tehran. And newsflash, Israeli airplanes do not have the range to hit uh, Iran uh, without help from the Arab allies or Arab uh, friends. And if such uh, help will not be forthcoming, Israel may use its rockets, uh, whether land-based rockets or rockets, uh, missiles, uh, on its submarines um, to hit Iranian targets, including Tehran, and including the oil terminal in All right, Bandar so, Abbas.
1: Dr. Cohen, what do you expect Israel to do in response, and when do you expect them to do that?
8: They're doing it now. Israel uh, mobilized 300,000 of the reserves. That, that's two-thirds of the reserves are mobilized already. Uh, the morale is high. I am monitoring um, uh, WhatsApp feeds of apartment buildings and uh, relatives and sources. And the morale is high. Uh, the leadership is trying to figure out what to do, maybe not as fast as we would like. For example, When Hamas was running over the villages and towns in southern Israel, and people were stuck under fire, it took sometimes eight to ten hours for security forces to arrive. Now, of course, the response is going to be faster, uh, and I'm sure that the Israeli Air Force and missile forces are getting ready. Uh, If Hezbollah is involved, and right now, these, these very minutes, we see reports about exchanges of fire along the Lebanese border. And uh, yesterday, Hamas was shooting missiles into the Sheba farm area that they claim, not the Lebanese government, but uh, Hezbollah is claiming uh, a little piece of territory between uh, Israel, Syria, and uh, Lebanon. Uh, if that escalates, um, all bets are off. Uh, the um, Uh, Bandar Abbas oil terminal of Iran is in the range of Israeli missiles. Uh, The oil prices may jump. And the U.S. support now, we see the um, uh, carrier battle group moving to Eastern Mediterranean in a clear signal to Iran that if they uh, activate Hezbollah, we may see for the first time a joint Israeli-American operation against Iranian targets in the Middle East.
2: So I guess, Israeli defense forces would sweep through Gaza and um, secure the border with the West Bank while they then move north, pushing into Lebanon. Is that the idea, militarily?
8: If Hezbollah opens, uh, Israelis will need to um, destroy um, whatever known targets are. The problem in Lebanon is that there are a lot of tunnels. They need to secure the West Bank, not just the line between Israel uh, and the West Bank. This is not a recognized international border. Israel occupies part of, parts of the West Bank. But any kind of terrorist activity out of the West Bank, shooting missiles, killing civilians, will require a response. And this is a big challenge for a small country like Israel, a country the size of New Jersey, with population of about 9.2 million people, that you have an active front in the South, in Gaza, Uh, where a 1,000 people got killed. Uh, You have a very unstable West Bank where Hamas is competing with Palestinian authority uh, for uh, power. And you have Hezbollah with 50,000 fighters and hundreds of thousands of rockets. This is a huge challenge for Israel.
1: All right. So, Dr. Cohen here, is there any appetite for some type of I don't know, a less lethal type of solution here? Is there any room for that? Is there any psyche for that in Israel at the moment?
8: No, uh, in terms of Gaza, absolutely not. Uh, when you say sweep through the Gaza Strip, uh, which is not big, it's uh, I think nine by 14 miles, um, a lot of it heavily built. Uh, the problem is the Israelis are not um, happy to kill civilians, but Hamas deliberately puts its military um, targets inside mosques, inside schools and hospitals. And there's no choice. Under international law, uh, if the military targets are within civilian um, population, you are allowed under the international law to hit the military targets. Israelis, for example, do what they call knock on the roof. They, They warn the citizens to leave buildings and sometimes they manage and sometimes Hamas prevents them from leaving. So uh, Gaza is going to be softened as a target uh, by the air force and artillery before they move in. So sweep, yes, maybe within a week, not immediately because they do not want to lose their boys and girls, understandably. We did the same in Iraq, okay? You don't go in before the targets are softened. Uh, And with uh, Hezbollah, if they really, into the war uh, they will be bombed and shelled before uh, the land operation begins. is there um, Dr.
2: Cohen is there any way to evacuate civilians from Gaza at yes, all because yeah, they, they have a border on all three sides and the Mediterranean on the other
8: Absolutely uh, and here the United States, Saudi Arabia and others can do uh, a lot of favor uh, to uh, the civilian population in Gaza. Well, first of all, uh, when you say civilians, I would probably focus on women and children first and foremost, uh, because a lot of able-bodied men are pressed uh, into membership in Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Um, And uh, civilians can go into two directions. One, uh, open spaces, fields, uh, fields and desert land in Gaza and stay there with tents, uh, or uh, go to the Egyptian border and convince it. the international community should convince the Egyptians to let the civilians uh, enter uh, and accommodate the civilians because we do not want um, any civilian casualties on on either side, Israel or uh, Gaza, to be hurt. uh, And then those who remain and fight uh their blood is on them uh in terms of lebanon same thing uh lebanon is much bigger than gaza the civilians should exit the south in case uh the balloon goes up in the south
1: okay dr cohen thank you so much for joining us uh we appreciate your thoughts and your analysis dr ariel cohen he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic council eurasia center uh, also, a, a former member of the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, one of the leading voices there. Intentions, obviously, running extraordinarily high. The next several days, I guess, will you know show a lot, uh, show the world where this thing may develop over the coming days, weeks, uh, and months. And we'll certainly have the full
6: reporting. You're listening to The team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney, live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, streaming as well on YouTube, so check us out over there. Let's bring in our good friend Mike McGlone. He's the Senior Macro Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based down in our uh, Miami office. And, And, Mike, we see... Oil surging here. No surprise. Uh, WTI up over four percent. We're now at about eighty six dollars a barrel here. Historically, you've got a ton of experience in this, Mike, when you see, you know, geopolitical conflicts break out, particularly in in the Middle East. How do traders uh, in the oil pits, how do they kind of parse this stuff out? To quote
9: my sons who are all adults like yours, they would teach me the word meh, um, <laughs> the word meh from what you'd see in crude oil today. Up 4%, it's kind of a normal day for crude oil. I'm not saying what happened with the Hamas of Israel conflict isn't normal, but it's it's indicative of what's happening in crude oil. Crude oil peaked at the end of September around 9503. So far, that's the high for the year. I think it's the market's retesting that, but it's also showing the, the resilience of managed money net positions are just starting to roll over. Over. They're way too long. It looks like it's probably peaked. It's showing the the more significant tilt globally towards this event might accelerate that tilt towards recession. And one thing also you're seeing what it's doing is you look at the front, the back month futures in terms of Fed fund futures. I mean, Fed fund futures just for October of next year are down 15 basis points. That implies that 2 year note yield, when we see it open up tonight, will be down 10 or so basis points. So to me, this might mark the peak that I've been looking for in crude oil and for bond yields. And to sustain higher prices, you need a major cutback in supply, maybe from Iran, but they're only a million barrels a day. To put that in context, the excess of supply over demand in the U.S. and Canada is six million barrels a day, about.
2: I just don't understand um, why we don't rally to far higher prices. I mean, Mike, last week we saw um, barrels of WTI trade for $95. That was, well— September 28th. Right. Right. If you if you liked it at 95, then um, it's now, you know, trading at 86 while we're while we're looking at the worst geopolitical eruption in Israel in 50 years. Why? Why wouldn't you back up the truck at this level?
9: It was already backed up. That's the key point. And member um, positions of hedge funds, they were the most long at that period since November of last year when crude oil peaked around 93. Now it peaked around 95. But it's also that macroeconomic bent Matt and it's at the tilt towards recession remember it's this is a major difference from we were young in the 70s and we had these kind of issues the us is a net exporter and a massive surplus kind of kicking in so also remember what happened to 2008 crude oil peaked at $147 a barrel and it was most, a lot of that was positions it wasn't really a strong fundamental reason and when that tilts down which it is or in the middle of that then you have the major repercussions of going towards recession. And I think that's the cases. So to well, me, th- that peak at 95 was probably synonymous with bond yields peaking around 5%.
2: Just a little history lesson, right, of what happened um, during the Yom Kippur War, because, well, I was born like a month later in 1973, but I remember um, distinctly a few years later when my aunt who had had a Mustang uh, got a little Honda Accord because, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Um, th- the the oil uh, the oil what was it like in the oil embargo was as it was referred to sort of started air with embargo, with the, yeah. with that war right yeah so arab oil embargo so i love going back to
9: 1973-74 that's the first time crude oil kind of really got to near 20 and that That started a trend in crude oil being the worst-performing commodity, bar none, if you compare it to copper and soybeans and broad commodities. I love publishing on this. It just doesn't go up. It does, and it spikes. It makes it go down. It's its own worst enemy versus things like copper. At least it made a new high last year. It's backed up. And if you compare it to soybeans, which I published this morning, soybeans way outperformed crude oil over time. So that, to me, is that's changed the world. And for people like, like me in the 70s, when I was pumping gas in 1979, we had a price in half gallons because it went over a dollar a gallon the world's <laughs> changed and that's what's really happened and that's happening now and it's showing up every day in this commodity that is right now the same price as first traded in 2007 and uh, it, that's why i like to look at it as if we were a month ago when this happened that was corels an upswing it might have pumped up $10, but it's already started tilting back down for the global recession, which most people know that's coming, particularly if you look at leading indicators in economics. And after this conflict will trigger that, crude oil will probably go to $40 bill. Yes, I've been saying that for a long time. I've been early. I've been wrong. But now that I see what's happening, it's its own worst enemies. It's spiking again. And you see what's happening. The stock market goes down. And if this tilts a normal correction in the stock market, that's the number one pressure for crude oil in the last few years. Every time Stock market drops 20 percent and the Fed saves it. Crude oil drops 40 percent. But this time, will the Fed save
1: it? So, Mike, you know, as Matt mentioned, you know, oil peaked just, uh, you know, back in late September. But since then, it's been it's been coming back and we were down, you know, obviously down in the the low 80s before the weekend news here. Um, And was that, as you're suggesting, kind of pricing in a recession?
9: Oh sure, it's starting to tilt there. So the low for the year, WTI crude oil, sixty-three dollars and sixty-four cents. Now, if you had told anybody that a year ago, they would have said, "Are you kidding?" Be a one in front of that, a one handle, (laughs) might know. So I have to point out, there's a few things I did get right, and that is, you never want to buy it when it spikes at that velocity. And every single time we spike at a similar velocity of last year, you always have a recession. Now. We're still at fed tightening so yes it's bounced from the low was uh low was eighty one dollars and fifty cents but the average price for this year about seventy seven dollars is the same as about two thousand six at least gold has made a new high so I look at it this way Crude oil might have peaked around 95. It looks like gold might be putting a bottom around 1800. Remember, let's see what's happening with this conflict. It's making the world realize, okay, well, the dollar is the best place to be, particularly with the high yields. And if you get a recession, crude oil almost always gets cheap. It almost has to get cheap to reset itself. That's what's been missing so far this year.
1: So in a geopolitical, in a world where we've got Ukraine, the Middle East, is there anything else on the commodity infrastructure that you suggest people either get long or short?
9: Well, the, the best-performing commodity this year is orange juice. It's, <laughs> it's, it's it's 120th the amount of trading as um, as wheat, and that's just more of an inventory thing. But the key thing I look at overall looking forward is let's look at historically. The best-performing commodity almost all of history is gold, and except in demand pull periods when you pull up things like gold and copper. But particularly in recessions, gold is the best performer, and I think it's just a matter of time it kicks in and does what it almost has does. And remember, remember thinking about, gold, you can store it on your body. It's cheap. It's not expensive. Crude oil is a toxic chemical. It's very expensive to store. That'll show up over time. So if you invested interested in energy and crude oil, it's better to invest in the equities. Yet if you invest right in, in, you can still invest in physical gold and ETF. And I think that's still going to be one of the best performing commodities this year. Now, this year, it's up only about 2%. It was up almost 10. And I think it just came back to good support. And if we get towards a recession, I think it's going to kind of meet at the same price as wherever they meet with the S&P 500.
2: By the way, you'd rather have the ETF than just actually buying gold bars, like a New Jersey senator, and putting them under your bed.
9: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've enjoyed being in the. I've enjoyed the gold space, and if that was me, it'd probably be lost or stolen. I know my my grandmother, who was born in Germany during the war, they st- stored some gold in their uh, um, in, in their underwear drawer. <laughs> I'm like okay. But, I mean, there's always – it's diversity. The thing about ETFs is you can buy, hold, and store that metal for virtually nothing compared to history. It was very difficult to do, and you still have to pay for that storage, you have, and you have the risk. ETFs, I'm not saying they're risk-free, but they're so much easier to get exposure. And the key thing that's really pushed for gold this year is that high interest rate. You can – you know, the, the, the output for the two, you know, that giant sucking sound of being up, up above 5% might have peaked. With the Fed potentially pivoting at some point, And that means gold gains a little bit of accolades because it's that um, it doesn't earn interest. And it's that, that demand pull and also the stock market. If the stock market's peak, gold should be one of the best
2: performers. It sounds like Bitcoin, only not nearly as good, right? Because well, there's a- you can keep Bitcoin on your person too and a lot more of it.
9: Big difference with Bitcoin. It's the best-performing com- um, um, asset in history, and its volatility is about two to three times the gold. And, Matt, we all know what happens in recessions when people hit the bid and things. You sell your uh, uh, winners, and you sell the high volatility assets first, and that's why I'm still worried about Bitcoin. If we have a normal recession, Bitcoin's going to go down with risk assets. At some point, we might get to another bridge and lack act more like gold and long bonds. But today, you see what's happening. On Compared to, compared to Monday of Friday, it's down about 2%. Ethereum's down about 4%. And I expect that to continue if we have a normal recession.
1: All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Mike McGlone, uh, direct and to the point on his call there. Mike McGlone, Senior Macro Strategist, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, from our Miami Beach office.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
5: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
6: Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: I tell you what, whenever there is a major geopolitical issue anywhere in the globe, one of the first people we go to is Jack Devine. He's a president and founding partner of the Arkin Group. Uh, he is a 32-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency. He has been stationed all over the world. He's a publisher of the book Good Hunting, An American Spy Master's Story, uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, it was an excellent read. Jack, here we are back in in the Middle East again with, with more conflict here. Let me just start with the intelligence area here. What happened that the vaunted Israeli intelligence, the American intelligence did not pick this up?
10: Well, I think everybody's scratching their head. Uh, I think everyone recognizes it for a a failure. When you look at Israel, I mean, I've worked closely with them over the years. They're very talented. They were at the cutting edge of technology. They know their target, right? They know the threat. Uh, They've applied a, a lot of the fine technology. So we have to ask ourselves today, How did Hamas get past that? And then the second area is the human sources. And again, I think many of us probably were relying on the Israelis to have Hamas covered in a way that somehow there would have been an early warning. It's the early warning uh, that you miss parts of intelligence are not uh, uh, unusual. But to miss that early warning on something critical like this there has to be an examination of conscience by all intelligence service to ask or do we have the right balance between technology and human and are we applying the right way and what countermeasures are we dealing with so i think it's a tragic situation and an intelligence failure that warrants after action very careful analysis
2: what do you think um, Hamas and maybe if it's working with Hezbollah or others, um, what's ultimately their goal here? Because now they've broken through borders at multiple points in Israel and carried out horrific terrorist attacks. Um, it, was that it, or do you think there's 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 more to come? Are they trying to bait you know Israel into Gaza? Um, are they trying to 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 blow up this conflict even further? Or do you think that was, you know, this was the plan and it was accomplished?
10: I think there's a lot of complex geopolitical issues behind it. Whether the organizers of it took all of them into consideration and played a great chess game remains to be seen. I'm allowing that it's possible. What I think, what we're seeing is what there was. In other words, they decided that at a certain point they were going to attack. Uh, This has been long in coming. I think they needed it to sustain themselves and uh, to push back. The thing that is stunning about it is that this is totally different in the level of sophistication and coordination. And I, I believe they had help. I mean, it's hard for me today. I may be proven wrong, but this looks like help from people who have done complicated operations and specifically the Iranians so the iranians have one set of things at play you know hamas has some and the russians were right in uh, approving it uh, and they they have things at play there's the saudi israeli prospects of a peace agreement establishing relationships if you will so there's a lot at play but i think hamas just wanted to have a successful operation this may exceed their expectations but i i think they weren't they weren't doing it on the fly. They executed their plan and I think we saw it. After, after that, I think it's the Israelis that, that have the game. They will they will decide how this plays out. I mean, they have ultimate force that they could flatten the country if they wanted to. So they have to calibrate it. But I think that Hamas can come back with new tricks. Um, I think they pretty well run the course. Can Hezbollah jump in? Can there be problems in the West Bank? All that remains to be seen, but I don't think it's in anyone's handbook. This part they're playing, I think they're playing day by day.
1: Jack, you bring up some bigger issues as it relates to Iran, uh, maybe even Russia. Um, You know, I guess the the issue is that that ties in with Ukraine. I mean, what role do you think the United States should play in the coming days and weeks?
10: Now, I've been talking about it for some time. I think there's a a grand struggle that's taking place in front of us in terms of the balance of power. On the one side, you have the democratic forces and its allies, and the other, you have the non-democratic forces on the other. There is a big game that's being played well beyond Ukraine. Ukraine was clearly the first manifestation of it. But you have Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, but now they're extending it and trying to spread spread the faith of the gospel, if you like, to other countries. If you look at Latin America, there's turmoil there in terms of elections and, uh, uh, and in Africa, tremendous turmoil. So it's very reminiscent. I hate to say it because, well, you're a Cold War. But it's so reminiscent of the international dimension of the Cold War, where the West and its allies were fighting them and counterpunching everywhere every once there'd be a hot war. So I think we're looking at it, and we have to look at it at a bigger scale. This is not just a fight between Hamas and Israel. There is this, like Ukraine, is going to alter the geopolitical dynamic of the balance of power. And now we're in the big time where things can get misunderstood, misconstrued, and we end up in expanding uh, hot wars.
2: Are you concerned about... Um the impact the impact of this, I don't know if, um, if you're saying this is kind of an axis of evil here, the um, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians and, and North Korea. But certainly a lot of those um, countries have been blamed for misinformation in US elections. We're approaching one. And, uh, you know, you've got a radical contingent in Congress that seems, to, if not support Putin, at least be opposed to Ukrainian aid? Are you you worried that they've sort of uh, infected the US Congress?
10: We're in a new age where artificial intelligence, disinformation is part of the realm, is part of the big game, if you will. And the Russians have been using it for some time. I think there was a general slowness in recognizing the the breadth of it, including involvement in our elections, which was, I was more upset about the fact that they were involved in, in it. Right? Not that they were collecting information, but that they were playing in internal US affairs is really quite unprecedented. I mean, there's a little dabbling here and here in history. And the same is true on our side. We do not meddle inside their country. This is dynamic. So this information, and I would just bring it to the moment, this information, is very much part of the Hamas, or if you like, and its allies propaganda. The propaganda is out there mobilizing their friends and it's dynamic. I also should have put a footnote. The cyber attacks at the very beginning of the uh, Hamas attack are very impressive. So you're looking at that new dimension of war, just like you're looking at new dimensions of war in Ukraine. This experience will not only be Lessons learned for intelligence officers, but it's also going to be lessons like uh, uh, lessons learned on war fighting and how how we are going to deal with this and it won't be just in uh, the Middle East so I, I think hold on to your seat Jack 30
1: uh, Jack 30 seconds left uh what do you think is Israel does next? How do you think they react?
10: I think they have no choice but to use an iron hand, and with that will come you know, repercussions. I don't see how it's possible, feasible, to have a soft landing, negotiators. I think it's nonsense to suggest that at this point. When you look at the savagery of it, how are the Israelis that have suffered so much in history yep. How how do how does the government stay in power, and not set this right? So I think the repercussions are going to be very hard. I I, I take Netanyahu at right. his word. I think everybody better. It'll be a hard landing. Yep. With. Long-term implications. Getting back to the peace deal. Yeah, actually, Jack, oh, should, I'm, I'm sorry.
1: We just got to leave it there just yep. because of time. Uh, but thanks, as always, Jack Devine, president and founding
6: partner of the Arkin Group. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Let's go to our next guest right here to get a sense of kind of a broader view of these markets here in the context of what is just another piece in the wall here uh, in terms of geopolitical issues. Quincy Crosby joins us. Uh, she is the chief global strategist for LPL Financial. Quincy, thanks so much uh, for, for joining us here. Uh, based upon your experience, when you wake up to find an event like this, what's happening in Israel or what's happening in, in Ukraine and other parts of the world, in your experience at, at, how do you kind of view markets in this? How do you view positioning? Is it, let's just kind of not, you know, make quick changes? Or how do you typically react?
11: Well, uh, you know, very often the first uh, response in a market is sell first, ask questions later. Right. We didn't see that in this market. It's actually been maybe because it was the weekend the market had time to uh, assimilate what was going on. But you don't want to do anything drastic because there's still uncertainty hovering over the market. Now you would want to go into treasuries, obviously. Gold, you see that, the treasury market will open. And you you want to see the stocks that you want to buy may wind up being even more attractive than even in this death by a thousand cuts that we've had in, in, in the market over the last number of sessions. So again, you don't want to be, but I will say this, we're paying attention to energy Uh, Crude oil is hyper, hyper alert to any rumor, any chatter of whether or not this conflict will expand into the uh, deeper Middle East and oil producing region. And also defense stocks. There is no doubt about it that we need more defense uh, spending. And I think it's going to happen because of this in Ukraine, obviously.
2: You have to imagine it will expand, given what we've heard from yeah. Netanyahu, and also given his position uh, there. Um, I, I wonder what you think about Treasuries now. The market is closed today for yeah. the bond market yeah. is closed today for Columbus mm-hmm. Day, but we have yields hovering at very high levels. So, for example, um, the ten-year right now at 4.80, the 20-year at 5.16, 5.17, and the 30-year at almost 5%. Um, you know, typically this is a place, Quincy, where you see investors go for safe haven. And mm-hmm. right now would be a time when they would use that. Do they, you know, when the market opens, um, buy up these treasuries and force those yields back down?
11: I think you'll probably see that. It won't just be um, U.S. investors. I think it's going to be global. If, if uh, the situation remains the same or certainly if it looks as if there's going to be an escalation uh, in terms of um, what Israel intends to do.
1: So, Quincy, I mean, I I guess one of the questions here for investors is, is this kind of the new normal, I guess? I mean, do I need to have my portfolio uh, structured in such a way that, you know, it just seems to be uh, more and more uncertainty out there from a geopolitical perspective? Do you view it that way or is is this kind of uh, we shouldn't go that far, I guess?
11: I don't think we should go that far. I mean, let me say that if um, the European Union, the u s, China, for example, can contain this event to just the, the region, uh, it will be a, uh, it will be significant for the concept of geopolitical cooperation. Nobody wants to see this expand. Maybe Hezbollah does Hamas, but overall, uh, there's a broad consensus that this can't go beyond these borders. So that would be good, that would be positive. But overall, uh, you know, we have to look in Washington as to whether or not Washington can come together, come up with a concrete package for defense, not just for the Israeli side and Ukraine, but for the United States. We're short in terms of uh, defense spending, it's down. And uh, we don't have the stockpiles that we need. It must be done. Maybe this will be the, the impetus for it. There's nothing better than strength. There's nothing better than a government that is intact that actually helps prevent this kind of event.
1: So it would help to have a Speaker
2: of the House, I guess. That would probably be the first step. It, it, Paul's pointing out that we don't even have a Speaker of the House here. And part of the problem was, obviously, um, that the far right didn't want to fund uh, any more support for Ukraine, and you you have to wonder. I guess Israel is a, a different story, especially for the far right. But does the does the political situation in the U.S. concern you at all, Quincy?
11: Well, yes, it does. Uh, again, if I were, if let's say I, I you know, I wanted to um, do something militarily overseas, this would be a good time because. I, just the way Hamas looked at what was going on in Israel and the strikes and so on. Uh, it's, it's always a good time when a, a government seems as though it uh, is not integrated properly. And you're right about the um, conservative element in terms of uh, spending more defense for Israel, very strong evangelical Christian base that is very pro-Israel and has been uh, historically
1: All right. So, Quincy, let's step back. Uh, Earnings are starting off uh, in earnest later this week. We'll get the banks here. What are you looking for in this earnings cycle?
11: This is crucial. uh, And I'm glad that we start officially with the banks, especially J.P. Morgan. I want to hear what they have to say about the consumer credit card delinquencies, late payments, uh, whether and who's being affected the most. I think we know that it is lower wage earners, but we want to hear from them rather than this conjecture than the headlines that we see every day. They will have a good handle on it. Also, they're going to tell us about loan growth from their customers, from their uh, you know client base overall, not just credit cards, and the guidance that the companies have. This is crucial because one of the things that is concerning and has been for some time, but it's been holding up, is margin compression. Because if we see margin compression deepening, and we don't think it's going to be, but if we do, they're going to have to cut costs. And that is going to affect the labor market, which is actually held up as we know, uh, and indicates resilience. But any sense that companies need to cut costs in order to get that bottom line, it is going to hit the labor market, which will hit the consumers, And then that leads you to the worry over a a darker landing as opposed to a softer landing. We don't expect it, but we're watching for it.
1: Absolutely. All right, Quincy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Always appreciate getting your perspective. Quincy Crosby, uh, she is the chief global strategist at LPL financial. Uh, Again, geopolitical risks front and center here. Uh, Central bank policy, also a big issue for these markets. Uh, And then uh, starting really later this week, particularly on Friday with the big banks, uh, we're going to start getting uh, into the earnings season. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast.
2: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.